0: Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. After Tokyo, Kyoto is probably Japan's best-known city. It was the capital until 1868, the historic home of the imperial family, and before the pandemic it hosted over 50 million visitors each year. Now it is facing bankruptcy. The Japan Times' senior national correspondent, Eric Johnston, joins us from Osaka to explain why. Just a heads up though, before we get into the conversation, sorry in advance for the rough audio quality. We recorded this on a bit of a dodgy connection while I was still in quarantine after coming back from the UK. And some days the equipment just doesn't work the way you want it to. Still, Eric has a lot of interesting stuff to say about Kyoto and its financial situation. And if you can stick with it, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Eric Johnston, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Thank you, Oscar. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So today we're going to be talking about the potential bankruptcy of Kyoto. And a large part of this discussion revolves around the effect that the pandemic has had on Kyoto's tourism industry. So to begin with, could you paint a picture for us of what tourism was like in Kyoto pre-pandemic?
1: Sure. Well, for starters, Kyoto enjoyed a very, very prosperous pre-pandemic tourism industry. In 2019, the city received 53.5 million tourists, and that includes about 44.5 million Japanese visitors and about 9 million international tourists. Now, until last year, uh, Kyoto actually bastoned the globe, being ranked as one of the best, if not the best, cities in the world to visit. There was a poll by the U.S. travel magazine Kandanaste that called Japan's ancient capital the world's best city just last year.
0: So it had a huge number of tourists then, almost 9 million from overseas and around 44.5 million domestic visitors. Pre-pandemic, how much money were these tourists spending in Kyoto each year?
1: Quite a lot. In 2019, they spent around 1.2 trillion yen. That's about 10 billion dollars, US dollars. And that was the fourth straight year the figure had gone over 1 trillion yen. So clearly the tourism industry was doing very well.
0: And has Kyoto always been like this? You know, when did Kyoto's relationship with tourism really begin?
1: Well, it depends on how far back you want to go. But in what's believed to be the first ever mention in the West about Japan, Marco Polo wrote that the king of Japan lived in a palace roofed with pure gold, and his floors were paved in gold two fingers thick. Now, of course, it would be tempting to think that, in fact, Marco Polo was referring to Kyoto's famed Golden Pavilion. Unfortunately, the chronology doesn't really work. Uh, The Golden Pavilion, in fact, was constructed decades after Polo's death. But the idea of a Golden Pavilion in Kyoto or somewhere in Japan became the first Western image of the country that we really had.
0: So Marco Polo was writing about this in around the 14th century or so. When did Kyoto actually open up to the wider world as a tourist destination?
1: Well, shortly after Japan opened to the West in 1868, uh, 1872 was the real beginning of Kyoto's international tourism. There was an exhibition in Kyoto that year, and that exhibition brought hundreds of foreigners living in Japan. They came and saw many of the things at the exhibition that tourists still come today to see geisha, ceramics, artwork, and all manner of traditional Japanese crafts. However, it was really after 1945, in the immediate post-World War II American-led occupation period, that Kyoto began to understand that tourism could actually be very big business. And so, by the late 1950s, Kyoto had become a very popular tourist destination for people from abroad. But it was the tourism bubble of around 2014 until the beginning of the COVID pandemic was really unprecedented. With the assistance and the encouragement of the central government, Kyoto promoted itself to the world in ways that it hadn't really done before. And by around 2015 or so, Kyoto was being called the world's best city for tourism. People came often for the same reason as visitors had done since the 1870s. But they came in far greater numbers and they spent far more money.
0: And of course, with this great influx of tourists, there was also a great number of problems with overcrowding in the city. And I think a lot of the residents there in particular became increasingly concerned about the effects that tourism had on the city and, and how geared Kyoto had become to tourism, which kind of brings us to the start of the pandemic um, when international tourism to Japan has effectively ended for the time being or been suspended and domestic tourism has largely died down. So you live in Osaka, not too far from Kyoto. What has Kyoto been like during the pandemic?
1: Well, the short answer is very quiet. At least compared to what it was like in the years leading up to the pandemic. Now, that said, I think many Kyoto residents, foreign and Japanese, are actually quite relieved that there are far fewer tourists these days. Prior to the pandemic, there had been reports of people dying in ambulances that were stuck in traffic due to large numbers of buses that were carrying tourists. Some residents were complaining that they could no longer visit their favorite restaurants, bars, or cafes because they had been discovered by Japanese and international tourists who were now lined up outside waiting to get a seat. Those in the traditional Kyoto geisha quarters, or geiko as they're known in Kyoto, had been dealing with tourists chasing down the geiko and maiko to take photos of them, like paparazzi. There was a gold rush mentality, especially in Kyoto's hotel industry during the tourism bubble. That created allegations of price gouging on social media, especially at peak times like the cherry blossom viewing season. With the pandemic, that's all changed. Recently, my wife and I stayed at a national hotel chain in Kyoto, and we only paid around 2,000 yen for a twin room And of course, as you can imagine, a twin room would go for a lot more than that normally. That price, however, gives you an idea of just how serious the situation is.
0: Yeah, I remember visiting Kyoto fairly early on in the pandemic and walking around the centre of the city after dark and just trying to count the number of lights that were on in hotel rooms. And, you know, you'd see these hotels with hundreds of rooms ready to be occupied and there'd be one or two lights on in the entire 10 floor building. And it it was really shocking to see. And how has this lack of tourists affected the city's finances, bringing us on to this topic of Kyoto's potential bankruptcy?
1: Well, the lack of tourists has had a very significant impact on the city's finances. And the city's financial situation has gotten so bad that in August, Mayor Daisaku Kadokawa warned that Kyoto faced possible bankruptcy in a few years. Kyoto has total debts of around 860 billion yen, and it faces a 280 billion yen deficit by 2025.
0: And are these problems with Kyoto's finances just due to the lack of tourists, or are there multiple reasons behind the city's financial troubles?
1: Yes, it would be easy to think that these financial problems are just the result of the collapse of tourism. But in fact, they run much deeper than that, and they've been around for a lot longer than the tourism bubble the last few years. Uh, There are problems with both sides of the financial equation, really. There's too little income and too much expenditure.
0: And what's an example of where the city is spending too much?
1: On the expense side, we have things like the underutilized subway lines. For example, the Tozai line, which opened in 1997 and has bled money ever since. Construction costs were 1.4 times what was initially budgeted. And unfortunately, the number of passengers has been well below expectations. There's also Kyoto's generous subsidies to residents aged 70 and over. They can ride city buses, and they can ride the subway for free or at a discount. However, Kyoto's rapidly aging population means more people have been getting those discounts in recent years, and that adds to the city's bill. Another problem is the bureaucrats themselves. Kyoto bureaucrats enjoy salaries that are said to be quite high given the tax base, and there are too many of them for the city to afford.
0: And what are the problems on the income side with actually bringing in revenue?
1: Well, on the income side, it's a problem of demographics. Around 10% of Kyoto's population is university students. Not only do they too get city-subsidized discounts on various things, but their universities often qualify for certain kinds of tax breaks. This means less money for city coffers. So combined with the growing population of elderly people who also pay lower or no taxes – the city actually has a rather smaller pool of residents to draw on for tax than other major cities.
0: This makes me curious, though. You know, we started off this conversation by saying in 2019, 1.2 trillion yen, almost $10 billion, was spent by tourists uh, visiting Kyoto. So why hasn't Kyoto been able to capitalise on this massive influx of tourists in previous years to you know, ensure healthy finances going forward?
1: A couple of reasons. First of all, many of the businesses making money off of Kyoto tourism are not based in Kyoto. They're headquartered in Tokyo, Osaka, or elsewhere, and that's where they pay their corporate taxes. Smaller Kyoto-based businesses, some of them at least, did make money. And Kyoto City did institute a lodging tax a few years ago designed to raise needed money for funding of tourism-related infrastructure. That income helped a bit, but not as much as other forms of corporate tax would have.
0: Mm -hmm. And is there an issue that's preventing the city from raising taxes elsewhere, for example, on properties within the city?
1: Yes, I think that's a question a lot of people are asking now. Why not raise taxes elsewhere? And there are a couple of reasons for that, some of which are political, some of which are financial. For example, Kyoto's traditional wooden machia, the townhouses, they're a very big part of the city's appeal to tourists. But from a tax perspective, the city sees them as weaknesses because they have a lower property tax than large modern buildings of the kind that you might find in Tokyo or Osaka or elsewhere.
0: And of course, they can't tear these machia down to build these large buildings that you do find in central parts of cities elsewhere because they're part of the historical landscape, right?
1: Well, that's right. They're part of the historical landscape. There's restrictions on the buildings in many neighbourhoods in Kyoto that would certainly prevent something like, say, a Ripongi Hills from rising up in the middle of Kyoto. That's never going to happen. But another reason, one which is more difficult, I think, for Kyoto residents to discuss is that all of the city's temples and shrines, designated as World Heritage Sites or not, they're exempt from local property taxes if they are registered religious corporations. They're also very influential, especially with the mayor's office and the city assembly. And there's a history. In 1985, Kyoto, in fact, did try to impose a tax on famous temples and shrines. However, there was a long, bitter legal fight that led to the tax being abolished by 1988. That fight still plays in the memory of Kyoto politicians and bureaucrats today.
0: So when you go to, say, King Kakuji the Golden Pavilion, or Kyo Musudera Temple, you're paying to enter each of these places, but you're saying because of the fact that these are registered religious corporations, none of that money in visitor entry fees is actually going back to the city?
1: Well, some of the money might go back to the city, but the main problem is that this. Kyoto can't levy property taxes on these kinds of institutions, even though they occupy large tracts of land in the city center.
0: Okay. And again, the same problem with the machia there, where you're not going to bulldoze through a thousand-year-old religious institution to uh, create a large department store, which might be more profitable, but reduces the kind of cultural appeal of the city.
1: It makes up the nature of Kyoto, but it's a combination of a political problem, a regulatory problem, and a financial problem. And it's just too big for the city, I think, to tackle.
0: You said earlier on that it was by 2025 that the city could be facing this 280 billion yen deficit and that this might lead to eventual bankruptcy in 2028. What would happen if Kyoto did actually have to declare bankruptcy?
1: Well, officially, it would be called restructuring. But the end result would be that Kyoto would lose much of its current fiscal autonomy. The central government, via the finance ministry, would take over. They would dictate what the city would have to cut from its budget in order to recover. The central government might, for example, recommend that certain city services that it wants to keep but can no longer afford be privatized. The bigger blow, I think, though, would be to Kyoto's pride and reputation – There would certainly be changes in local politics if bankruptcy was declared, although it's kind of hard at the moment to say what those would be. But again, it would be a really big blow to Kyoto's reputation.
0: Mm -hmm. And how can Kyoto get itself out of this predicament and avoid having to declare bankruptcy?
1: Well, first of all, despite the dire situation at the moment, I'm not sure that a lot of people in and out of Kyoto truly believe the central government will actually allow the city to declare bankruptcy. That includes myself, precisely because of what I just said. Taking such a drastic measure would be a blow to Kyoto's reputation, but it would also embarrass the central government, which has made Kyoto a major pillow of its national tourism strategy. The Cultural Affairs Agency is scheduled to relocate to Kyoto in a few years, and the only nationally run international convention center outside of Tokyo is located in Kyoto, This is the place where the famous Kyoto Protocol to Combat Global Warming was signed in 1997. And of course, it's the traditional home of the imperial family and the center of so many Japanese artistic and cultural traditions. It is not Yubari, the town in Hokkaido that declared bankruptcy a few years ago. It's Kyoto. And it's a very different, special place in the minds of Tokyo's decision makers and the world at large.
0: In that case, even if people don't believe that the city will be allowed to declare bankruptcy, is Kyoto taking any anticipatory measures to get ahead of this, or is it quietly confident that nothing actually needs to change?
1: Oh no, it's definitely trying to get ahead of this. The mayor is seeking 21.5 billion yen in salary cuts for the bureaucrats and the elimination of 550 jobs. He also wants to review various municipal projects and subsidies that total around 72.1 billion yen and to sell municipal land worth 11.7 billion yen. This is all over the next four years. That said, another side of the story is that Kyoto still needs to figure out new sources of tax revenue that are more stable and reliable than tourist spending. The city's learned that tourism can wax and wane, depending on not only things like a pandemic, but also political problems. The other thing is, and this is not something that a lot of people will think about, is that Kyoto's tourism industry and Kyoto's traditional festivals, which many tourists come to see, are often tied to the changing of the seasons. However, advancing climate change in Kyoto means that exactly when the spring cherry blossoms fall or when the autumn maple leaves appear is becoming ever more unpredictable. And, of course, that affects how the city tries to plan its tourism because both of those events are incredible moneymakers for the tourism industry.
0: So what is the city trying to do to diversify its income sources and bring in new businesses to act as a new source of tax
1: revenue? Well, at the moment, Kyoto has many research universities, and there are certainly no lack of creative younger people with the skills who would love to work in Kyoto if they could only find a full-time job in Kyoto after graduating from one of those universities. Of course, many other people in other parts of Japan love Kyoto, and they too would move there if they could just find a full-time job. So the potential is great depending on the industry. Kyoto is already home to businesses like Nintendo, Kyoceta, Omron, and others that the world knows. However, it needs more different kinds of businesses, including overseas firms, to relocate there in order to really get back on solid financial footing.
0: And is the city actually trying to do anything to encourage companies, especially international companies, to relocate to Kyoto?
1: Well, there are various official promotion campaigns underway, but not really of the, the kind of thing that uh, you might expect. One Kyoto politician had the idea of sending the mayor to cities like Boston, Seattle, Silicon Valley, other countries where there are large numbers of high-tech firms, and basically invite them to set up their East Asian campus or their East Asian headquarters in Kyoto. But that's an idea that has yet to be put into practice.
0: Now, we've already heard the kind of early grumblings of a lot of residents who see the downsides of tourism more than the upsides. And now it seems like this potential bankruptcy really highlights the fact that tourism isn't necessarily the golden goose that the city once thought it might have been. Will the potential bankruptcy change the city's relationship with tourism going forward?
1: Uh, Yes, it will. There is much more talk now among Kyoto's Japanese and foreign residents about the need for sustainable tourism. Terms like micro-tourism, environmental tourism and such are being bandied about with more frequency. And a lot of people have a lot of creative ideas for getting tourists to return without all of the hassles that we saw five or six years ago. That's all well and good, but the more basic question is who is going to pay for the kinds of public infrastructure projects needed to turn these ideas about sustainable tourism or micro-tourism or environmental tourism into reality, because the city probably won't be able to afford it. Now, we've already seen an announcement from Kyoto that For example, spending to remove telephone poles and bury the lines underground is going to be suspended because of the financial crisis. This was a project that was started after decades of complaints from visitors that the telephone poles were an eyesore and that they spoiled the traditional atmosphere. So, a lot of new incentives are going to rely, I think, on private funding of various sorts. And as we don't know yet, if further cuts in city services beyond those already announced are going to be needed. It's kind of tough to formulate a short-term, let alone a long-term, tourism policy for the city.
0: And I imagine that the other difficulty is that the Kyoto government will be wanting to rake in as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, when tourism does return. So there'll be a natural temptation to return to the old model of mass tourism, even if it was far from perfect.
1: Oh yes, I think that will definitely be the case. The large hotels of Kyoto also enjoy a large degree of political influence in City Hall. And of course, they'll be working very hard to bring back loads of tourists, as many, as many as possible. So that's definitely going to happen. The question is, is once they come back, will they still spend money in the same way as they did before the pandemic? Or will there be uh, a new breed of tourists coming in who want to avoid the kinds of spending that Kyoto saw beforehand? If so, what does it mean for Kyoto-based businesses, especially smaller businesses in the tourism service industry?
0: And to kind of wrap it all up, do you think that Kyoto will recover the city? Or do you think that this potential bankruptcy is a you know, threat to its reputation and its position as a center of cultural heritage?
1: Uh, No, Kyoto will recover. We are talking about Kyoto. It's a world-class city that's very popular within and without Japan, and tourists will return. Perhaps not in the numbers that they did a few years ago, and as I just said, perhaps their spending priorities will be somewhat different, but they'll be back. Kyoto's long been an alluring destination for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with money or official political or bureaucratic or media PR schemes. Whatever else... I'm confident that the same allure that's attracted people since the 19th century is going to continue to attract the next generation of visitors from Japan and from overseas, regardless of whatever the city's financial situation is at the time.
0: That was the Japan Times' senior national correspondent, Eric Johnston, joining us from down in Osaka. You can read more from Eric at the Japan Times website. His recent articles on Kyoto's potential bankruptcy are linked in the show notes. Sorry that the audio was a bit rough this week. We had all sorts of tech problems trying to record this one, but if you've made it this far, I hope it wasn't too unbearable. That's it for this week's episode. If you have a guest or a topic suggestion, please do get in touch by emailing us at deepdive@japantimes.co.jp. If you'd like to relocate your business's Asian headquarters to Kyoto, please contact the city mayor. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until next time, summer.